Thank you for listening to the Voices of UMass Chan podcast, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Chan Medical School. This podcast is produced by the Medical School's Office of Communications. For our longtime listeners, we are excited to share that the Voices of UMass Med podcast is now the Voices of UMass Chan, a reflection of the medical school's name change in September 2021, following a transformational $175 million philanthropic gift from the Morningside Foundation to the medical school. You can read more about it at umassmed.edu slash umasschan. In this episode, the focus is on vaccine hesitancy, which remains the most significant roadblock to controlling COVID-19 and restoring our nations, our economies, and our lives. Here in Massachusetts, the percentage of residents who are fully vaccinated is among the highest in the country, roughly 70%, but that rate varies widely from state to state, from county to county, and in some regions of the country, as, as much as a quarter of the population remains hesitant or outright unwilling to get a COVID-19 vaccine. Two UMass Chan Medical School researchers who have been investigating the reasons why people are reluctant and the best approaches to inform people's decisions are with us. Kim Fisher is an associate professor of medicine and Kathy Mazur is a professor of medicine and associate director of the Myers Primary Care Institute. Thank you both for joining us. Our pleasure. This really is so timely, so important, and so top of mind because it is, like we said, the roadblock you know, to uh, curtailing the pandemic. So if we could just start defining that word vaccine hesitancy, what does it mean? And just because someone is hesitant or resistant, does it mean that they can't be persuaded? Traditionally, in the medical literature, vaccine hesitancy is defined as a delay in accepting or outright refusing a vaccine despite them being available. So it's intended to differentiate from people who are unvaccinated because they don't have access to a vaccine. Thank you, Dr. Fisher and, and Dr. Mazur. Um, so if people are hesitant, they do have access. Uh, public health experts and their physicians would most uh, likely agree that that would be a good idea for them to get vaccinated. So does it mean that they're not persuadable uh, to, to go ahead and get that shot? That's a great question. And I think, you know, I think it depends is the answer. There are some people um, who I think can be moved and influenced to get vaccinated and some who are you know, we, we kind of see them as being on a continuum between kind of like, well, I really want to think about it, or I need more information, or mm, I'm a procrastinator, <laughs> which I can identify with. And then there are people at the other end who are pretty staunch in their beliefs and are the hardest. And we've had interesting discussions between ourselves and other team members about kind of what, what does it take? Are we changing people's minds? Are we, um, or are there also other influences where people still don't want to get vaccinated, but they do almost in spite of themselves? So there's, there's it, it's a very kind of complex, tangled um, problem. Mm, interesting. So that, of course, ties directly into the work and the research that you both have been doing over the 
course of the pandemic. In the spring of 2020, you uh, began surveying Americans about their attitudes toward the COVID-19 vaccine and how they have changed over time. So tell us a little bit about your research and uh, what maybe some of the common denominators are that you're finding among the hesitant. As you mentioned, we first started working in this area um, in April of 2020. And it's important to remember that at that time when we surveyed um, a sample of uh, the US, a nationally representative sample, uh, we didn't have a COVID-19 vaccine then. So we were really asking people, hypothetically, if one were available, would you get it? And um, amazingly, those percentages turned out, uh, the percentages of the people who answered that question as, I'm not sure I would get it or no, I wouldn't, turned out to be pretty predictive of the percentages of people who were COVID-19 vaccine hesitant when we eventually had a vaccine and it was no longer a hypothetical question. Um, and not only did the percentages turn out to be pretty consistent, but a lot of the reasons that people gave back in April when it was hypothetical back in April of 2020 are very similar to the reasons that people are um, citing today for being reluctant to be vaccinated. So some of the really common ones are things like it was developed so quickly. How could it be safe if it was developed so quickly? Um, there were some um, sort of conspiracy theories. So concern that maybe there's a microchip or the government is trying to use it as a way of controlling the population um, to really just, how do I know it's safe? How do I know it'll work? Pretty um, reasonable things that somebody would want to know. Um, and I think that today we see really similar themes. And, you know, I think that the most common concern that people have is, is it safe? Um, or at least that's the most common concern that people give for not being vaccinated is that they're worried it's not um, going to be safe. There are lots of different flavors for is it safe from I'm concerned about what's in it, I'm worried it might cause infertility and a, a whole variety of concerns, but really it all boils down to I'm worried that this is going to cause harm to me. I think that the interesting thing to ponder is kind of they're, they're worried about the harm of the vaccine. Uh, many people are, and that's been consistent and how, how folks weigh that against the potential harm of COVID. And, you know, to, to you know, folks like us and, you know, physicians, scientists, um, it seems like a pretty clear balance, you know, which side it comes down on that the vaccine, if you look at your risk, you know, you're so much better off getting the vaccine. But how, how why is it that that balance doesn't go in that direction for everybody? That's the, the interesting thing to, try to understand and try, like you were asking, try to persuade and move those people. And to put a finer point on, on what you were just talking about, Dr. Fisher, in January 2020, I'm wondering if that's January 2021, some of the common reasons for heads, a third of people surveyed said they were concerned about the safety, as you said, uh, a fifth one in five said uh, they were concerned that the development of vaccines was rushed. And then uh, another 15% said they were concerned the vaccine hadn't been tested in enough people at that time. 
are you seeing um, as as the case numbers swell at certain times or then decrease at other times? Are you seeing that uh, that presence of the seriousness of COVID overwhelming our healthcare system, failing emergency departments, you know, limiting access for people with other health conditions to get into the system. Are you seeing that that's having any movement or influence in terms of persuading people to get vaccinated or, or not? So I think that really gets to kind of the heart of what Kathy was saying, which is this balance between the risks people see on the vaccine versus the risks of COVID. And so I think you're saying when the risks of COVID seem much more prominent, um, does that influence people? And so what I can say is that we have interviewed people who were hesitant to be vaccinated in January. And by the um, summer of 2021, had been vaccinated. And some of them, when we asked them what influenced them to change their mind, some of them did cite what we call, Ill, what in our shorthand, we call illness experience, meaning um, that they knew somebody who had been really sick, whether it was somebody close to them or a friend of a friend. So we think that those are examples of um, people recognizing the seriousness of COVID through this kind of direct personal experience that has helped um, them to put the risks of COVID versus the risks of the vaccine into some perspective or a balance that's more consistent with the way that we see those risks and that the numbers would say those risks are. Understood. Yeah, that's really interesting. So um, much of the work that the the two of you have been doing has focused on, you know, determining what is the best way, what are the best approaches, what helps move that needle or in terms of giving people the information that they need to feel that they can make an informed decision about this or considering their own personal health um, circumstances. So you found that how the message is delivered can really make a difference. And I want to make sure that you talk about that. There's one thread of our research that has collectively um, highlighted how important the messenger is. Um, and so what we're finding is that, and this is consistent with work that other people have done, is that physicians and healthcare providers are trusted sources of information about the COVID-19 vaccine. A lot of patients want to learn about the COVID-19 vaccine from their physician, want information from their physician. And among people who are hesitant to be vaccinated, they're more likely to want to be vaccinated in a doctor's office compared to at a CVS, at a retail pharmacy, nothing against CVS, but at a retail pharmacy. Um, so, you know, we sort of collect, we think that that, um, collectively points to the importance of engaging provide healthcare providers in the um, conversations about the vaccine with individuals who are hesitant, as well as in the delivery process of it. And we think that that's a potentially influential lever that has been surprisingly um, not fully used or brought to bear in the current vaccination delivery, where most 
of the vaccine is being delivered at either these mass vaccination sites or retail pharmacies are really the main place where people are getting them. So it's kind of um, cut the doctors out of it a little bit. And I think that that's really a missed opportunity. So I guess that would be one piece is that we think um, involving healthcare providers more in conversations and delivery, making vaccines available at doctor's offices is an important element. And then the other thing that our research has shed a little bit of light on is, um, well, what is the best way for providers to recommend the vaccine? Right, so and not just the who is delivering Not just who delivers the message. Exactly, but what is the message that's delivered? So um, we did a survey of US adults in January, 2021. And among those who were hesitant to be vaccinated at that time, which is about, it was about 750 people in our survey who were hesitant to be vaccinated. We asked them to imagine that they were at a doctor's um, visit and then their doctor said to them a message, and then that message was systematically varied. So we randomized those 750-odd people to, to randomly receive one of five different provider messages. Um, and we varied those messages across a couple of dimensions. One was... Um, some of the messages included a very explicit recommendation. So the doctor said, I recommend that you get vaccinated directly, whereas the others included what's been described as a participatory style recommendation, where it's not quite as explicit, it's implicit, and it involves the patient more. So instead of saying, I recommend that you get vaccinated, they would give them information about the vaccine, it's safe, it's effective, you're eligible for it. And then they would say, or no one actually said it, it was in a survey, um, but the message was, what do you think? And so we found that the um, people who received an explicit recommendation were much more likely to indicate that they would get vaccinated at that visit. So after we um, delivered these randomized messages, we said, would you get vaccinated at this visit? And the people who got an explicit recommendation from the doctor, about 30% of them said that they would get vaccinated at the visit. Um, a smaller percentage who got the elective style or participatory style, the what do you think message indicated that they would be vaccinated. So that was one dimension was that the um, explicit recommendation is important. Yeah, the most direct approach was the most influential approach uh, when coming from a healthcare provider. Yeah. So that's that's a great detail to know that we can take forward through the through the coming months and years, although hopefully it won't be years. You're listening to the Voices of UMass Chan podcast, featuring the people, ideas, and advances of UMass Chan Medical School. What about the the personal, the family, the, you know, the, the friends who are having these conversations with um, loved ones or with acquaintances, you know, they're not physicians, but they maybe they want to understand vaccine hesitancy a little bit better or influence a, a friend, a, a family member. What advice do you offer to them, Dr. Mazur? 
Yeah, well, it's interesting. I, I think those are important influences, um, and partly because that's who people are around day day in and day out, or their friends and family members. And I think what what we found are that those people can be quite influential. Um, we identified when we looked at folks who were initially vaccine hesitant, who eventually um, did get vaccinated. In a number of instances, it was because, well, we talked about it as a family and we decided we'd all do it together. Or, you know, I had a friend and they had to go get it for work. And I said, oh, I'll go with you. You know, so kind of, I, I call it, we call it solidarity kind of with others that that kind of if, if somebody else has to do it, well, maybe it's not so bad. And it's almost like it, it kind of, um, that those influences, whether it's encouragement, um, we had somebody um, respond that the reason they had gotten vaccinated was because their relative, I can't remember if it was an aunt or a grandfather, said, you know, please do it for me. Do me a favor. I have a big favor to ask you. Please do it. So I think that those conversations with friends and family members and that kind of making a day of it, doing it as a as a activity that we do together, um, that does seem to have gotten some folks over the hump and saying, okay, I'll just, I'm just gonna go do it. Um, and I think that sharing for people who have been vaccinated, sharing kind of that, you know, people do learn from others. It wasn't that bad or it was bad. I was sick for a day, but now I'm so relieved and I'm so glad I can go and do X, Y, and Z and not feel as worried as I was before. And I think that worry, about um, getting really sick, being able to leave that, you know, behind is really um, motivating to people. So sharing those experiences, I think, can be really productive. I'm not sure that your research has considered this, but given um, that the mandates has become such a hot button issue here in, in certain parts of the country, um, do you see the mandates or uh, do you see that being something that can help increase, like, will there still be an ongoing upward demand for vaccinations as time goes on? Or do you think we've plateaued here? I think we think that they're very important and that they they can help move people to get vaccinated. I, I mean, I think they're, you know, as we see on TV every night, there are people who quit their job because of it, but there are lots of people who say, all right, I guess I have to do it. Um, and, you know, when we found that in our work too, I just I got to a point, I said, I just better just go do it. Whether, you know, cause it would make my life you know, just harder if I don't, whether it be losing a job or having to be tested or having, you know, missing an opportunity. And for some people, they were able to kind of almost say, all right, I guess I'll put those fears about the vaccine behind me. I'm just going to go do it. Um, not everybody has that response to the mandate, but it certainly looks like they're they're having a positive impact on a lot of people. Kim, I, I'm sure you have more to add. Yeah, no, I would agree with that. I think that they there are people who might not have otherwise been vaccinated who have gotten vaccinated because of a mandate. Um, so I think that they are definitely effective at increasing vaccination. I don't know if I would say that they've increased demand necessarily because mm -hmm. it's kind of a push pull. You know, these may be people who wouldn't have otherwise. So they're not, they're not really demanding it or saying that they want to be vaccinated, but they're doing it. And then the other thing I'm curious about in terms of 
uh, barriers to vaccination. You know, I think when the vaccines were newer, we heard more about maybe a lack of transportation to get a shot, or maybe uh, an inability to get time off of work to get a shot, or childcare issues prevented people from getting the vaccine. Are those uh, barriers, those sort of social barriers, still present, or do you think that with time people have found? people who are seeking or want to get vaccinated have found a way to do it. I think that those barriers have been less of an issue than I anticipated they would have been, but I do think that they are still present. Um, this is a very small sample, but we've been conducting focus groups with people who are unvaccinated and we've been conducting them um, in addition to with English speaking people, with people who speak Spanish, um, we have a very small sample of Spanish speaking participants. So I don't want to make more of this than it is. But interestingly, what we have found is that there seem to be within that group, many of them seem to be um, unvaccinated more because of barriers than because of vaccine hesitancy. So some of them have expressed not that they're reluctant or worried to get vaccinated, that they want to and they haven't been able to. And I think that's not surprising that it would be harder to access um, if English isn't, to access the systems for getting vaccinated if English isn't your primary language or you don't speak English at all. And Dr. Mazur, the last question that I have for uh, both of you is, you know, is there a percentage in your mind that you would like to see the population, the general American population reach in terms of herd immunity protection that we've heard so much about? And then if you could just sort of um, share a little bit about what you're working on now or what might be next in terms of your research uh, about vaccine hesitancy. Yeah, I mean, I'm not an epidemiologist. So for me, the ideal number is probably 98%. I mean, I know that's not realistic, but, you know, I think the higher, the better. And I, you know, I, I, I think we don't know really how many people have had COVID and how close to herd immunity we are and what that actual number is. So I don't, um, so I don't know. I don't have a good answer for that. But I think, um, I think there's still a lot of interesting work to be done because I think this has implications for other areas too, obviously flu shots and other vaccines, but uh, other preventive behaviors. And I think our work right now, we're, as I kind of alluded to, we're, we're looking at some results that we have from people who were initially hesitant and then were vaccinated. We're talking about, again, going back to those same folks who were initially hesitant and are still not vaccinated and going back to them and trying to understand even more kind of as, as you've asked about kind of how this in context or, you know, kind of the environment is changing, you know, over time and trying to better understand that and see are there different um, levers that have been effective at different points in time. And then I know Kim has more um, exciting work to talk about that's going on now. Well, and if it's okay, I would just jump in on the herd immunity question, which, um, you know, I think that what that percentage is depends on how transmissible COVID is. And so it really increased to, I think some people say something like 85% with the Delta variant because it's so much more transmissible. And so it's a little hard to put a number on it because we don't know how that may continue to change and evolve. Um, but I think another important point when thinking about herd immunity is that 
you have to think about sort of, well, what is the herd that we're talking about? And so we could give kind of this number for the US or for Massachusetts, but I think that the um, people who are unvaccinated tend to be clustered. And so it even if at the population level we're at 70% or 75% or 85%, are there pockets that are way lower than that that are going to continue to experience these outbreaks? And I think that that is likely to be the case just the way our country is set up. Um, so that's the other important piece of it is sort of what population are you measuring that number on? Um, and then I guess your, I think your other question was about our um, future work. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, because of our um, focus on the healthcare provider and specifically physicians as really important um, messengers about recommending the COVID-19 vaccine, we're currently doing work where we're trying to bring the provider voice to unvaccinated patients, but sort of like at scale so that it's not every doctor having to talk to every single patient, but we're developing um, a website that will eventually have a series of videos on it that will be local physicians responding to some of the really common questions and concerns that we've heard from unvaccinated people in these focus groups we've been doing so that it's a way for these people to be able to hear a response to their question from a physician. Mm -hmm. And then we plan to disseminate this by having providers um, text a link to this website along with an explicit recommendation. So borrowing on what we learned about what's important for providers to say, we're trying to create a platform whereby providers can, on a larger scale, deliver an explicit recommendation and provide some additional resources and information um, from providers to unvaccinated patients. Well, that's really interesting, and we'll have to keep an eye out for that. I also think you made a great point. It'll be interesting to see, for instance, what the findings you you all have made might mean for flu vaccination rates this winter. I think that that will be a really interesting number to watch. So thank you so much for your work, and thank you so much for your time. We've been speaking with Drs. Kim Fisher and Kathy Mazur. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. This is the Voices of UMass Chan podcast. Thank you for tuning in. I'm Jennifer Berryman. Follow UMass Chan Medical School on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Our handle is UMass Chan. On YouTube, find us at UMass Chan Medical School. Thank you.